Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is a brand new person to the space, stepping up from the shadows of Twitter, a boomer, a, a gentleman, a British gentleman of um, financial market background and possibly the first quant trader in the city of London. It's a, an amazing journey through history when you listen to Bruce talk about how business used to be done back in the days without barely even a computer, to be honest, uh, in, in many, on many desks and flying across halfway across the world to check in on deals uh, that he had no idea were going right or wrong whilst he was in the air and making public um, telephone calls from, from airports. And uh, here he is, he's found the world of, of Bitcoin. And he's coming on the show to share his thoughts as a professional quant uh, trader and, and portfolio manager from uh, all these years ago and applying his knowledge to, to now and what brought him to the Bitcoin space. It's a great story. It's brilliant. And I'm so glad he reached out and has stepped up to, to come on the show. And he's really looking to connect with as many people as possible. So please reach out. Uh, before we do get into the show, make sure you go and check out once-bitten.com. Hit up the sponsors page. You'll find many companies there, but the main ones are coinfloor.co.uk, Bitcoin-only exchange, swanbitcoin.com, forward slash bitten, shift, uh, excuse me, shiftcrypto.ch, forward slash bitten, and relay, R-E-L-A-I.ch, forward slash bitten. All Bitcoin-only companies. Let's do this show. Thanks, guys. Yeah, here we go. Okay, Bruce, we are recording. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for reaching out. Pleasure. Pleasure. Well, over to Lauren, as usual, for the uh, for the first question. Okay, so this this is going to be quick because I have to run. Okay. Um, so why did you reach out to my dad? Okay, um, one of the difficulties of getting involved in the crypto world generally is that there are a number of people who've been doing it for many years. They call themselves the old guys. Uh, they're not, they tend to be young. They are mainly guys though. Um, and unless you're part of that group and have been to Bitcoin conferences for five, five years or so, been through the, the, you know, the last bad experience of the bear market, there's a feeling that somehow you don't have anything to offer. Um, and I'm not part of that groupie crowd. So finding somebody who would be interested in talking to me has been quite hard. Uh, and I, I've had two or three rejections and somebody suggested your dad. So that's the connection. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now we can have a, a nice long form conversation with Bruce. Yeah. Well, I can at least. You yeah. can't because you have to run. Okay. Well, do you want to say thank you? Uh, yes. Um, thanks for the answer. And I think I'm, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Have a great podcast. Thank you. 
Okay, Bruce. Well, thank you for reaching out and thank you to whoever pointed you in, in my direction. Um, always happy to chat with the Bitcoin plebs and anyone of any age. So wh why don't you actually just uh, start by letting the listeners know a little bit about yourself, um, how old you are and, and um, your past experience, what you were doing as, uh, as your main career? Well, I just passed my 64th birthday, so I won't sing when I'm 64, but there we go. Um, I started in the city of London uh, as an investment manager um, in the very early 80s, which is a scary thought. It was a long, long time ago. Um, and I was unusual because my background was scientific. Um, I did a degree in chemistry at Oxford um, and got involved in theoretical chemistry and started writing code for um, the, the big computer at Oxford because we didn't have a graphics interface in those days. We didn't have a graphics interface in those days. I mean, that's how, how primitive things were. Um, and I moved into the city because being a theoretical chemistry um, postgrad paid no money. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I sold myself to the highest bidder who happened to be NM Rothschilds and Sons. And at Rothschilds, I worked um, in international corporate finance for about 18 months during which time I realized that people were obsessed with precision and not accuracy, um, which is an interesting sort of distinction. So people wanted to have big projects, I mean, multi, multi-million dollar projects with projections accurate to the cent, but they didn't see the big picture and they didn't run multiple simulations and they couldn't run multiple simulations because a simulation of a project would be run overnight in say San Francisco on the company's mainframe computer. And you got one simulation a night if you were lucky, which made negotiation a little tedious. So I thought, well, stuff this for a lot. Why don't I go and program something very simple in basic, that, in a basic programming language, early programming language, which modeled this complex uh, system, but nothing like as accurately, uh, nothing like as, 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 as to the, the precision of the um, big computer, but nonetheless gave us a picture. In fact, we might even print out a little graph. So to cut a long story short, I ended up in a hotel room in Papua New Guinea with a very early um, luggable computer um, doing pretty graphs, which I could walk into the conference room uh, and show my boss who was doing the negotiations. And the other side were having to wait 24 hours for every run and we could do 10 runs in a minute. Uh, and of course we aced the negotiation. Um, and that really started my career. And I realized that this project was not actually about engineering or anything like that. It was a gold mine in Papua New Guinea. It actually was about the Australian dollar, the Deutsche Mark and the price of gold. And everybody knew everything about engineering, but nobody really knew anything about where the gold price was going to go or, or where the dollar was going to go. Or, or, or any of the things that really matter, the sensitive variables, which of course propelled me into macro and asset management. And I joined NatWest in their fledgling investment bank. And very quickly realized that a mathematician, a scientist in investment management was you know, completely unheard of. Everybody was a politician, did PPE, did history, did philosophy. So it was quite shocking to have somebody who was a quant. I mean, I was probably the first quant in the city of London. 
so inevitably I form links with quants in America, the early quants. Indexation was brand new in London. There weren't any index funds. So I built the first one um, and the second one and the third one. And then Barclays, my big competitors, started doing the same. And uh, we ended up being index fund managers. And then uh, and we ran index funds in UK equities and global equities. All the index funds up until that point had been solely in US equities run by Americans. So we then went and flogged our products of UK indexation and German indexation and Japanese indexation to the American pension funds. Um, and I, when I left the city, I was doing what we called in those days active asset allocation, which today would be called macro fund management, moving assets between big index funds around the world and building big in index funds. Uh, and I bowed out in 1997 because I, I got slightly bored, I got slightly frustrated, and I wasn't popular because indexation was still seen as giving up. You know, the active managers were the people who had all the fast cars and didn't perform very well. And I had no fast cars and no, no interest in fast cars and I was performing very well. And I charged you know, one tenth of the fees. And that's not a way to win friends and influence people. So I went and did some other things. Um, and then years and years and years later, which is September of last year, I finally closed a deal on some land, uh, sold some property in the UK, agricultural land for development, and found myself with an asset portfolio to run. Um, and that was an interesting problem. I was back to where I was uh, 20 years previously, becoming an asset manager, but now for myself. Okay. Sorry, that um, was a very long answer. I do apologize. No, that's, that's, it's a, I love the, the stories of old. I really do. And I, I'm, I'm going to, go down a few rabbit holes but uh um can, can you hear me okay am i coming through yeah okay you're absolutely fine yep. no you're fine okay brilliant um yeah th this word quant i think is uh something that we might um help people understand but in if you were one of the well if not the first quant in london because this word still gets banded around financial markets like they're, they're demigods. Oh, you know, I'll give it to the quant desk and the quant guys will come in and have a, a look at it. We, we had them in the foreign exchange markets as well. And everybody thought they were like these super genius brains. What to your mind is, is a quant trader or quantitative uh, analyst? Well, uh, when I started off, because my computer generated a lot of heat, and the only printer I had was a thing called a daisy wheel printer, which made a noise like a machine gun. I ended up in a very small closet sharing my office space with a, with a large photocopier. Um, and I have one junior, um, Karen, who joined me, um, who was a graduate from Cambridge. And that was the quant group. And no one knew what to do with us. No one knew what we were for, except it seemed like a cool thing to have one because JP Morgan had one and Wells Fargo had one. So Nat West had better have one. Um, and really, we, we were just given a freedom to think about how to, how to do stuff. And we started looking at things like, did the NatWest chief economist have any predictive power? That was another way of not winning friends or influencing people. Um, so we analyzed all his calls for the last 10 years uh, and then couldn't publish our results. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I started to ask myself the question. I mean, things, certain things were easy. It was easy relatively to index, you know, to build an index fund. Uh, it was relatively easy to build a bond portfolio that would meet future sets of liabilities for a life company. That was our bread and butter work. 
Um, but I started to ask myself the question, the big decision is not whether you buy Shell or BP, it's not whether you buy BP or uh, ICI, it's not whether you buy uh, BP or John Lewis. The big question is how much you have in the UK equity market, how much you have in the French equity market, how much do you have in the German bond market, how much do you have in gold? These were the big questions that people answered by having committees that went on for hours where people threw their, threw their hands around, came up with various theories that might or might not have validity, and eventually you decided to do what the competition did because it was too risky to do anything else. And the whole thing was a bit of a pointless exercise. Um, and I was a, enough of a radical to say that. Um, to which response was, well, if you think it's all a bit of a waste of exercise, why don't you build your own fund? Um, and that rocked me back on my feet because I had no economics training. I had no, all I really knew about was data and time series. And that's what quants were about in those days. And I think still are largely. We acquire data from as many possible sources and objectively try and model from history what is likely to happen in the future. Uh, and it's an imprecise art form, it's not real science, but then no, none of the economics is a science. Um, it's all about rather speculative modeling. And if I was able with our group to generate an edge that we genuinely felt was the reason why the US equity market was gonna do better than the UK equity market over the next six months, we'd take a punt. But we then thought, well, this is like betting. So let's, if we're going to bet, if we're going to stop pretending we're investment people and we're actually betting, let's go and learn from the betting market. Let's read the books about how poker players make money. And that took us down the rabbit hole, which ended up with a, probably the most important thing I ever learned in, in my investment career, which was the Kelly criteria. Um, and the Kelly criterion just tells you how, if you've got a view, how much do you bet? Uh, you know, if you've got an edge on the house, you don't want to bet your entire uh, gambling portfolio on the next turn of the roulette wheel because, you know, you might have an edge, but you might be unlucky. Uh, you might have an edge over 50 roulette turns, but you might not over the next one. So you work out, you got an edge of a certain amount on perhaps not a, so much a, a roulette wheel, but more likely a poker hand. If you've got an edge on the house, how much do you bet on this hand? How much do you bet on this hand? How much do you bet on this hand? And the Kelly criteria tells you how much to bet. And we used Kelly powerfully to decide how much to move away from our neutral allocation of the US versus the UK equity market or of German bonds versus gold. And that's what we kind of did. So we were using mathematical models, probability, risk management to determine how far we should move to reflect the very weak signals that we got from history. And, and those signals were just time series signals. When you said you joined um, early 80s and we had a big crash in, in 1987, um, what was going on in, during your career at, at that point? I wonder, I wonder if you've done some background research. Um, there's a big story there. So, okay, by, mid, by the mid 80s, I was really, really interested in options. Um, options were still something that real investment managers had no understanding of. And I was intrigued by the fact that you could gain the upside while protecting yourself from the downside. <clears throat> and by this stage, I had 
joined, I was the only international member at that point of a thing called the Berkeley Programme in Finance, which was an biennial conference we met twice a year in delightful locations around the world, once in the US and once outside the US, about 150 of us. And we were split approximately, I suppose, half were real cast iron academics. I mean, the gods of this business. Um, about a quarter were plan sponsors, people who, who were the, the pension fund owners. They were the guys who decided how much the California State Pension Fund gave to Germany or gave to a particular money manager. They were, they were people of tremendous influence. And about a quarter were money managers, people who were actually seeking to understand how the world worked and to get money from the sponsors. So these conferences were really, well, great fun. We had some fabulous speakers. A uh, number of people went on to, to get Nobel Prizes. Um, so we, you know, we really were learning from the very best of the very best. And it was through that that I realized that one of the things I could do was to provide some protection to UK pension funds that were mature, i.e. That, that weren't in receipt of large quantities of, of pensioners, uh, of, of employees' provisions each month, but had a lot of pensioners, I could provide them some protection if the UK equity market collapsed, because the bulk of their exposure was to the UK equity market. So in the summer of 87, a particular pension fund, Hoover, in Merthyr Tidville, came to me and said, we are worried about our exposure. We would like to protect ourselves against the possibility of the stock market collapsing. And we sat down with them and we worked out a strategy whereby we could do that. Now they were too big. There was no real option market in FTSE that we could use in the UK equity market that we could use. So we built a synthetic option. Um, and that was one which is essentially a computer program that told us how much today should you be in equities if you want to make sure you don't lose more than 70% in a year's time. And you do that calculation using a thing called the Black-Scholes model, or, or at least that's what we did. And both Fisher Black and Myron Scholes were part of the Berkeley program in finance, um, as were Hain Leland, Mark Rubenstein, and the other gods of option theory. So with their help, and they were always being academics, always willing to, to help and have a phone call, um, we built this model and, and we ran this thing, which we called portfolio insurance because it was insurance, assuring against the risk. The problem with it was it meant you had to trade quite often, like at least once a day. And we were often trading quite large sizes. This was a very big pension fund. Um, and that meant that if the equity market started to go down sharply, we would be selling very large quantities of futures in, on, on the London International Futures Exchange live. Equally, because we were protecting international assets as well, we'd be selling large amounts of money in Chicago in the Chicago futures markets. So uh, on the dreaded Thursday, um, I appeared on, on UK television, on a, a program on ITV, talking about quant and about portfolio protection. And there were some concerns about the equity market, which is why this was profiled on that half hour program. Um, but I said, I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think these modern techniques would precipitate a crash. They would provide protection against a crash. Well, as that was being 
broadcast. Uh, it was recorded about three o'clock in the afternoon. As it's being broadcast about 10 o'clock at night, the wind was whistling through the trees where I was in, in Buckinghamshire. And this massive storm hit us, you know, the, the great hurricane, um, which flattened you know, all, all the trees in Seven Oaks or whatever. Um, and nobody could get into the city the next morning. Um, and it was an absolute nightmare. So I was sitting on this, this huge potential risk because we'd, we hadn't promised, but we said we'd you know, make best endeavors to protect the Hoover Pension Fund. Um, and I couldn't, I got as far as Watford before my train turned back. Um, and and we, we really weren't able to do very much that day. The markets weren't properly open, um, but we knew that Monday would be exciting. Um, so I got into, I got into work. No, sorry, I'm getting my getting my date set off. I did get in that morning eventually. Um, I, I I went back home, the train, got the car, battled my way into 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 London. So I got there about ten o'clock in the morning, um, and I didn't like the look of the market. Uh, I was very concerned about the amount of sell orders that I heard were rumoured to be about to be sold in the States because JP Morgan and one or two others were running a similar program to ours. So my guess was that it was a huge amount of overhanging sales about to, to, to hit the market. The UK market was beginning to fall. Um, I had, my computer was broken. Um, I had water in my office, the, the, the glass of the window had broken. There were virtually no directors in the building. I was a director, but I needed a second director if I was going to do the sort of trade that I contemplated, which was to sell my entire equity exposure for this pension fund and a few others, uh, and also to put a big sale order into Chicago for the US exposure. I eventually found another director who was willing to countersign, uh, and we sold. We sold massively that morning. We sold very heavily in Chicago uh, when it opened, um, and we protected the portfolio. Job done. Everybody's very happy. Um, you know, the fact that the computer didn't work didn't matter. You don't need to have a computer to tell you if the equity market is going down uh, an elevator and you're meant to be protecting your client that you need to sell and sell everything, uh, which is what we did. However, a few months later, I got an inquiry from the US Senate uh, as to whether I might have been indulging in un-American activity because I had been so active in the financial futures markets. And I had been on British television the previous night talking about the possibility of there being a crash. Um, long, long, long story. Anyway, the end of it all was I got a footnote in the Brady report about how it all happened. Um, but yes, that was the type of stuff we were doing. We were very early pioneers and, and it was risky. Um, but our clients were very happy with what we managed to achieve. It wasn't always 100% what we'd hoped, but it was a lot better than having no protection in place. Mate, that's that's what an incredible story. These are the stories I love from from the old days. And to think that you're just like picking up the phone to Black or Shoals and just bouncing ideas around is just that's incredible. Okay, so I'll tell you one more story if, if you have time for it. <laughs> of course, we we had this is probably my favorite story, um, and I, and it, it for various reasons never seemed to get out. So it's a, this is a bit of a first. So. <laughs> We had these biennial conferences, the Berkeley Program in Finance, um, and uh, we had one at Caesars Tahoe, you know, nice place to have a conference. And um, we took over a bulk of a casino, um, there were 150 of us, so we took you know, probably a third of the rooms in the casino. Um, 
this casino has a big hotel above it. Lake Tahoe, is, Lake Tahoe is like a sort of more genteel version of Las Vegas. Um, and we, we had a very interesting conference. We were talking about all sorts of things, about how to do very big international trades, the problems with time zones and slippage and currency and all sorts of issues. I mean, bear in mind, I was at this stage where I would get off a plane between London and Tokyo, um, look at, uh, call, call the office in London from a call box. Remember, we didn't have mobile phones. They would be reading numbers off uh, a screen to me. I'd be talking to my colleagues and we'd make a decision to buy very large quantities of yen. Um, I get back on the plane, uh, continue flying to, to Tokyo and be in my client's office when I discovered whether we made the right decision or not. Um, it was a very different world. Um, and uh, we did, I mean, uh, one other very quick story. We did a huge transaction of UK equities. I mean, probably one of the biggest that had ever been done up until that point, at one point in time. So I bought and sold, you know, I can't remember, but it was, it was many, many, many hundreds of millions of pounds. And um, the critical thing in a big transaction like this is you have one spreadsheet uh, which has all the buys and all the sells so that the back office can reconcile this, this, this nightmare that might involve 15 clients, 25 portfolios, 600 names. You can imagine it's the sort of thing you want to get right. And we were using an early version of Excel. Absolutely fine, no problems with that. And because we had to get it to the chief cashier's office at NatWest, so the back office could do all the operation, we, uh, we had to use a floppy disk. Uh, which was a precursor to um, a data pen, I suppose. But floppy disks were floppy. You could bend them. They were, they were sort of plastic in a, in a sheet. They're very strange things. So they went in an envelope. Um, so we cut this, this spreadsheet that we wanted, all perfectly done. I checked, double-checked, triple-checked. We put it in an envelope and handed it to Harry. Harry was our courier. Now, in those days, the city used to have a number of gentlemen, usually gentlemen, who had bicycles. And they would cycle from office to office carrying envelopes. Um, and this was the way big tra transactions were done. You know, often it'd be hundreds of pages of printout would be cycled by some poor gentleman who was often in his, you know, his sort of third career. You can imagine the time. And um, you know, sometimes packages went astray because somebody decided to go to the pub or what rather than, but nonetheless, this was the means of communication. So this fateful evening, um, I, I gave Harry, who was my favorite, I gave Harry this, this A4 envelope with a single floppy disk and he said, Harry, it's really important to get this to, to Threadneedle Street to, you know, to, to control back office, make sure that it's signed for. Um, and and you know, it's a really important document. And it was, it was only a thin thing. It seemed like not very important sheet of paper. For whatever reason, Harry, bless his cotton socks, stopped for a pint on the way, which is, you know, which is normative. So he missed the window, as it was called, when that office was, was open. Um, now, being a bright lad, uh, he thought, OK, well, uh, there's, a, there's a letterbox. If I fold this thing in half, I can get it through the letterbox. So he folded it in half, put it through the letterbox, which of course meant the disc was completely unusable. Now, I didn't know this because by this stage, I was on my train back to Hertfordshire. 
went to sleep, didn't think about it. At two o'clock in the morning, the chief cashier of NatWest rang up, rang up and said, I want to know uh, why and who authorised you to take out a 26 million overdraft without warning, because we're going to have to go to the Bank of England to fulfil it. You know, <laughs> um, and the answer was because Harry had folded the uh, floppy disk off. Anyway, the, the story I was meant to be telling you relates to Lake Tahoe. We'll get there eventually. So we were having these discussions about big transactions and taking big risks. And we were sitting in a casino. And um, Peter Bernstein, who's, who wrote an absolutely fabulous book, um, something like Gods and Risk, um, it's worth looking up. It's, it's, it's one of the best books on risk ever written. It's very readable. It's not, not a mathematical book, although he was a highly mathematical individual. Um, Peter Bernstein. Um, he suggested that since it was a casino, we ought to open the casino floor one morning during the conference and, and have 10,000 of artificial dollars chips each and uh, see who won. You know, we'll have two hours on the, on the casino floor. If we all knew what we were doing, then you know, it should be very interesting. Um, so this we did one morning. And I, I knew nothing about casinos, so I, I put some money on on, on roulette because I sort of vaguely understood it and a few other things. About halfway through the morning, I was, I think I was down 5,000 notional dollars. And I noticed that um, Bill Sharp, who, who got a Nobel Prize um, for his work in finance, Bill Sharp was walking around not doing anything with his chips. And I thought this is very interesting. One of the other people noticed that Bill didn't seem to be enjoying himself. Five minutes before midday when we were going to do the reckoning, Bill Sharp walked up to um, the uh, roulette uh, table and put everything online, all his, all his chips. And the wheel was spun, and of course it landed on nine. So Bill Sharp bet the house and beat us all. Um, in discussion about why he did, he said, if I put it all on nine and I'd lost, no one would have commented. So my downside was pretty well zero. If I put it all on nine and it won, you'd all think I was a superhero. So that's what I did. And he said, that's what is meant by an asymmetric bet. Uh, you know, there's no downside and there's buckets of upside. And that probably was the best lesson I ever had in risk management. That when you've got an edge and, you, and it's a good edge, you bet the ranch, you bet your career, you bet everything you've got. If you don't have a strong edge, you diversify and you take many small, small risks. And the skill of macro management is between being, as Raoul Powell calls it, irresponsibly long when you've got an asymmetric bet or being highly diversified, which is what traditional fund management does. That, that dichotomy is the, is the tension that's right at the center of how to do real world-class asset management in my view. This is... William Sharp of the um, the Sharp uh, asset pricing yep. model. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I mean, I, 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 I'll give you just one other last story. So we were. This is this is this is this is an example of how good it was. We were sitting out having a a, a, a steak um, at Jackson Hole with uh, Patrick Lett, who. Patrick's one of the world's experts in um, population dynamics of Wales. Uh, you know, this really was a slightly multidisciplinary group. 
Patrick knew a lot about how whales traveled and how they clustered together and, and, and what happened. And he was looking at, he, he decided that he was going to leave oceanography and become involved in oceanic bio biology and become a fund manager. And he was using his modeling to, to teach us about how, what happens when you have big players in a market, hence whales. Um, and it's very, very interesting. What do you do if, you've, if you suddenly discover you're a large part of the market? How do you, and, and it, it may sound silly, but you don't always know how big you are in a market. So you may take a bet because you think it's a clever thing to do. And you then suddenly realize that you've bet a significant portion of the available assets in that market. In other words, you have become the liquidity market maker by mistake. Um, and as a big asset manager, that can happen. But it can happen for malicious reasons, like you know, when the, the Hunt brothers decided to corner the silver market, they deliberately became uh, the, the, the liquidity market maker uh, and pushed the prices. Sort of like the, um, the, the recent things that have gone on with, 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 with Robin Hood. But um, it can happen to you by accident. And Patrick was teaching us, what do you do if you suddenly discover you're a serious player? How do you unwind your position so that people don't know you're unwinding it? This type of stuff, really, really interesting things. So we were, we were talking about these sort of areas and, and skills. And we had Larry Hellebrand, um, uh, John Merriweather, uh, Marin Scholes, you know, a bunch of people sitting around talking with Patrick and I was just sitting there as the boy. I was younger than most of these people, um, but I was listening to every word and, and you know, the idea came out of starting a, a, a hedge fund to exploit large numbers of these minor inefficiencies. And out of that grew long-term capital and long-term capital nearly blew up the world. Oh so, my goodness. <laughs> So that was that was one of my memories, um, and I, I could, in theory, have been part of long-term capital, I suppose. But one of the problems was that I was a Brit, and Brits didn't become part of the entrepreneurial American scene. We didn't become generally part of Microsoft. We didn't become generally part of long-term capital. It wasn't the sort of thing to do. Although one of my contemporaries, who was a chemist at Oxford, was the, the seventh employee at uh, Microsoft, and now owns an island. Um, <laughs> so it, it does happen but you have to be exceptional to do that and I was never exceptional um, I was a pioneer but I wasn't I, I, I never became particularly wealthy I, um, and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't my desire I was just interested I, I was interested in markets I, I found how markets evolved and how prices evolved absolutely fascinating and, and how you took risk and how you managed risk and to me, those are deeply mathematical, which is, a long, which is a long way to say the quants were the people who applied mathematics to problems. Um, the politicians and economists were people who, who applied more loose, unquantifiable, uh, subjective models to, to predicting markets. And sometimes they were right, and sometimes we were right. Um, and often our biggest role was to make sure when they had a strong feeling, um, that, that might not to us have a particularly clear validity. Nonetheless, if they had a strong feeling, our job 
was to make sure they didn't bet more than they should do, which comes back to the Kelly criteria. And if someone had a very strong view that Japan bonds were going to do fabulously over the next three months, do you put 2% of your portfolio into Japan bonds or 20% of your portfolio? That depends on the client. It depends on whether you're in profit by in the sense of have you had a good last two or three quarters? If you had a good last two or three quarters, it doesn't matter. If you've had a bad last two or three quarters, you don't take very much risk. We used to build those sort of models to help the subjective managers, the active managers in a traditional sense, to decide how big a bet to take. Of course, it was never called betting, but they were bets. Um, my wife always believed that I was in a glorified betting shop, that I wasn't really doing a proper job. And she was right. Um, she was right. It took me a while to realize it, but she was right. <laughs> well, I joined the markets uh, just as you were leaving them. I, I, I made my way up to um, London in 1995 to to join the foreign exchange markets and i joined the the spot dollar mark um a desk at uh, at Tullet in tokyo now they oh, right. are some characters they are some real characters and now these are a completely different set of personalities to i was never exposed to personalities like yourself bruce i was never exposed to the the quants and whatever else in in those early days it was much more the frontline foreign exchange traders brokers there was some I'm sure you met many of these types of people. I'm just wondering what what kind of happened throughout your career that so if you if you left it in '97, what what had changed? What what what's what was yeah, like? So, <clears throat> well, a lot of things. Um, so probably the biggest trade I ever did was done in a wine bar uh, on a napkin, um, and do you I remember was, the wine bar? Oh, I do. I remember the napkin. Um, you'll see why in a moment. So, um, I, better, I don't think any reason. David Heron, who was James Capel, big hitter at Capels, the senior director for Capels. Um, and I, a, a quite young, but nonetheless very large asset manager, because you know, I had these big passive portfolios. Um, there was, David and I talked often more than once a day. Um, moving you know, big, big packages of, of UK shares, you know, single blocks and you know, multiple blocks of 25 names. So sometimes there would be, he would know that a client of his was going to have something coming up that might be of interest to me. And um, normally we were able to talk about it because it was small enough that it wasn't going to move the market. We didn't have to worry about it. But I had a, a problem. I, I had a client who wanted to buy a very large amount of UK equities. He's an, an American client um, and wanted to get them in and very quickly. He knew when he was going to have funding and he wanted to buy without moving the market. And I had a hint that an, a Scottish fund manager was going to liquidate an investment trust that would mean that a lot of equities were going to come onto the market. And I, I, my intelligent sources indicated to me that James Capel, David Heron, was going to um, be the people who were going to sell it. So I called David and I said, I think you've got a piece of business coming up that's interesting. And David said, I couldn't possibly talk to you about that. And I said, no, absolutely. Um, shall I buy the claret or will you? Um, so we went out to the wine bar and David said, look, Bruce, we've got a problem. We're either competitors in one of the bigger trades that have ever happened 
or this is the trade made in heaven and we'll do it at mid-market plus a quarter each and we'll make a fortune. Um, we just don't know. We don't know whether we're able to say, either to reveal each other's hands. He said, what are we going to do about it? I said, we can walk away from here and we never have this meeting. We could tell each other which way around we're going to be, but you might lie, I might lie. Um, there's a game theory problem here. Um, so David and I agreed that we would write whether we were long or short on the back of our napkins and put them on the table and we'd turn them over at the same time. If I was long and he was short, we'd do the deal there and then and we'd work out the details when we got back to the office. Um, in other words, I was going to buy his portfolio sight unseen at mid-market um, and that was it. Other way around, I was going to sell the portfolio if we were uh, opposite to each other, we never, we'd never had this meeting and we would never mention it to anybody or to any of our colleagues. Uh, it turned out that we were the right way around. We did the deal on a handshake there and then. Uh, that couldn't happen today. It couldn't happen because there isn't trust, which you know, we probably should be talking about Bitcoin at some point, but one of the things about Bitcoin is you don't have to trust anybody. Um, we built, we being the city of London, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, built a world that was based largely on trust. Now that meant that some people, the bad ones, did get in there and did make inappropriate fortunes. But the vast bulk of people, the Sigma Warbirds of this world, were, were dead straight, dead honest, um, fabulous men and women who, who took, you know, who, 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 my word is my bond, it really mattered to us. Um, and when I did the Accepting Houses training course at the very beginning of my career in the city at Rothschilds, I went to hear these people talk about what it meant to, to trust, what it meant, what a signature meant. Um, you know, if, if you ever, I mean, give you an idea, if you were at Rothschild in 1979, as I was, there were only two titles on your business card. You were either a director, in which case you could commit firm, or you didn't have a title, in which case you couldn't commit the firm. And if a director committed the firm, that meant the firm stood by it, irrespective of what happened. And being a director of Rothschild mattered, really mattered. Um, and they were responsible and senior you know, people. So John Silcock, who was my director, you know, if John had signed a piece of paper, that was committing the family's reputation, the fortune, the wealth of the bank to something. That doesn't happen. That type, of, that type of responsibility, that type of caliber of people <laughs> were destroyed. They were destroyed by the Americans. The Americans coming in changed the way we did business. Uh, and I was, a, I was a, a, a director of James Capel, stockbroker, at the time that uh, Merrill Lynch bought James Capel. And very few of the 58 directors stuck it. I think three or four were there 18 months later. Um, because we didn't like the way of doing business. Uh, and that was mid-90s. And, mid um, and, you know, I, I learned that my word was my bond, that, I, that my client was my responsibility. Um, that yes, making money was good but ultimately my job was to keep my client happy because my client had dealt with the firm for 20 years and was going to deal with the, client for, for the firm for another 40 years. It was just a different way of doing things. Now, on the other side, and, and I spent some time doing this, 
I worked in a more trading operation where um, the only responsibility was to make money and to increase the size of your book. And you mentioned foreign exchange. I did some time in World Money Center. Yeah, absolutely. There are jobs to screw the other bugger. If anybody was stupid enough to, 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 to move the price the wrong way, you, you took them for as much as they wouldn't let you have. And if particularly if they were a foreign central bank and they were a bit sleepy, you, you, you'd take them, you'd take them for everything. Different approach, different world. Uh, trading and asset management were, were different. Uh, and there was no doubt about that. And I was primarily an asset manager, although I did do some time uh, on the trading side. Right. So this is this has set us up now for the Bitcoin discussion perfectly, which uh, for the listeners, um, I hope you enjoyed all of those old war stories. I'm, I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face that the whole time there, Bruce. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. So as you said, you 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 now you've, you've reached the age of 64. And because of this uh, uh, land sale, you find yourself as an asset manager again. And something led you to look into and peek inside the, the rabbit hole of Bitcoin when you're looking to allocate these funds. So could you talk us through through that journey? What 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 brought you here? Well, the, the first thing is I didn't intend to. Um, I didn't intend to be an asset manager. I knew the land. We got planning permission a year before we closed the deal, partly because COVID interfered with it, partly because there were structural things that still needed to be sorted out. But I knew back in, in um, September of, of 2019 that I was going to be, at least in my language, wealthy for the first time in my life. Um, and, and that was a shock. And the obvious thought was I need to go and find an asset manager. You know, I've been out of asset management for 20 years. Why on earth would I go back? I, it was way out of date. Things were going to have, got, have improved massively, new technologies. I didn't even know what an ETF was at that point. Um, and I went and talked to a total of just over 30 different entities about managing my money. And they ranged from wealth managers to IFAs, to private offices, and I was unimpressed. I was systemically unimpressed. I found that they were using the same language, the same uh, untruths that they perhaps weren't even aware were untrue that were being used when I left the city. Um, There was still a lot of talk of we'll be able to tell which way the markets are going and you know we'll be able to manage your portfolio for you and you know 60 percent equities 40 percent bonds all this bullshit um and i was unimpressed i i did not feel you know, if it really was the case the best you could do would be 60 percent in equities 40 percent in bonds uh, i might as well do it myself but i also looked and thought hmm I don't like the feel of the world equity markets, and I particularly don't like the feel of the world bond markets using my old professional skills. This is uncomfortable. Um, this is not a great time to be uh, receiving a portfolio. Because Think about it from what was happening to me. I had a family portfolio of land that had been in the family since the 1860s. It was illiquid. Uh, it didn't move much in value. Its potential value was probably the same throughout. Um, and suddenly, at a particular point in time, on the 24th of September, I was going to move from an illiquid, stable asset 
into something that was you know, the open markets, which were highly volatile. And that was a big transition. That, you know, and, and it wasn't my money, it's the grandchildren's money. That's the other thing that started to make it poignant and difficult. You know, all my grandchildren are under five. Um, so under five years old, there are less than five of them as well, but I meant under five years old. Um, so I, I started to have a problem. I said to my wife at one point, look, I just can't find anybody that I feel really comfortable about managing this portfolio. And she said, well, you better do it yourself, which I suppose was the logical thing to do. So I decided I would do it myself. And that involved me spending oh, a couple, three hours a day, really, for most of the year, getting back up to speed, talking to people, talking to asset managers, um, thinking about how I accounted for my portfolio, how I kept track of what was going on, tax, lots of things. And um, I decided that one of the things I needed was a, a dashboard. So if I was going to have a complicated portfolio with multiple assets, I needed to know how much everything was worth on a regular basis. Um, and I found a, um, uh, a quant, a young man who actually was, was a spectroscopist at a hospital, um, but who contributed to one of the, the, the forums that I was uh, on asset management. Um, and he said he'd happily, for a, for a modest fee, build up a, a, a spreadsheet, dashboard, whatever it is that I needed to help me support my decision making. So that started to be a, a, a good conversation. And that really started about March at the time of lockdown. So he suddenly had nothing to do. Um, and he and I built the backbone of the asset management toolbox that I use today. Um, he basically, I specified it, he built it in something called R that I don't understand, but I gather it's very clever. Um, and um, I, I slowly got a feel as to what I should be doing. One of the things I realized was that I wanted precious metals, um, that you know, the whole COVID thing frightened me. Um, I think frightened everybody, but it made me think I, I don't want to be exposed just to um, equities. I don't want to be exposed just to bonds. And I discovered a thing that I think I knew about before, but I'd forgotten, called the permanent portfolio. And the permanent portfolio is a very simple idea. It's developed by a man called Harry Brown. Um, and basically the idea is you don't know the future. So you put a quarter of your wealth uh, in four different things that behave differently, whatever the future is, but hopefully one of them will do well. And the four things are equities, gold, bonds, and cash, 25% in each. And that's the permanent portfolio. Um, and my thought was that I would put together a permanent portfolio. Um, but then equities became even less attractive because the market went up. Inflation started to be a risk. Bonds became unattractive. Uh, cash was, was generating 0.1%. Um, so anything I knew I definitely wanted was some gold. So I, I, the very first thing I did when um, we, we finally got completion on the land deal was to go out and buy some gold, some silver, and later some platinum. And that's in, in, in Verdeus, um, in Liechtenstein, in a vault. And I borrowed against it. Come back to that in a while. That's a whole subject in its own. But one of the most useful things that relatively wealthy people can do is to borrow against their assets. It tends to be something that less wealthy people can't do. Um, and 
there's a whole reason why that means that wealthy people get wealthier and, and less wealthy people tend not to. Um, a very fundamental issue about that. Okay, so got the gold, um, but in the middle of the summer in June, this young man said to me, you ought to consider investing in Bitcoin. Well, I sort of knew about Bitcoin in the sense I was aware it existed, but I'd sort of like most people in my generation assumed it was some sophisticated Ponzi scheme. Um, and, and I started to sort of think about it. Um, I spent a bit of time reading a little bit. It, it, not, nothing really grabbed me. But I also decided that I needed something to replace my bonds. Um, and I decided I would invest in a hedge fund that specialized in low risk, low return, six to 7% a year, year after year, boring. Um, but you know, with a lot of things like private debt and other structures that enabled you to do this. Um, so I decided that, that I found a, a hedge fund I was happy with, um, a small hedge fund run by a, a city gentleman by the name of Arno Kitts, it's called Perspective Investments, solid, unexciting, very high quality. Um, so I thought, well, I'm gonna put a big slug of the money into that. Um, I'm going to put a big slug of money into the precious metals. Uh, I'm gonna leave my pension fund, which was 100% in equities, inner SIPs that have been like that since 1992, that I hadn't touched since 1992. I hadn't changed the asset allocation. It's a global portfolio, slightly overweight in the UK. And I just decided I'd leave it at that. And that left me with some spare money, some of which would supposedly be cash and some of which could be used for commodities and some of which could be used for crypto. Um, and it was actually the guy who runs this um, hedge fund, Arno Kitts, he said, you ought to read a paper by a lady called Lynn Alden, who, who you know, I'd never heard of, about Bitcoin. If you're thinking about crypto, you ought to read Lynn Alden's paper. Um, and I did two papers. And then I encountered Raoul Powell. Then I encountered Stefan Levera. And from then onwards, you're down the rabbit hole. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, right, sorry about that. Um, I hope yeah, that's away. okay. Um, so yes, what makes me different from a traditional boomer, I suppose, is that I've got the mathematical background. Um, I've got a bit of programming, or at least I haven't got any programming these days, but I know how to put a spreadsheet together and, and I understand why people program things. Um, I, I'm not somebody who could read the, um, uh, the, the original Bitcoin paper, and well, I've never read it. I probably ought to. I possibly could understand it. I possibly couldn't understand it. it it's not terribly important to me. Um, but there were things about Bitcoin that I picked up from Lynn's original paper that were very interesting. Bearing in mind that I'd already decided I wanted um, an anti-inflation scarce asset, so I was going to buy gold. Uh, I was predisposed towards buying silver, predisposed towards buying platinum and predisposed towards buying Bitcoin. Um, so it was really on the scarcity argument um, and the fact that it was you know, easy to transport. Um, the nightmare of buying gold in Blackpool 
and transporting it to Verdus in Liechtenstein in, during COVID does not bear repeating, but it was one of my more painful experiences in, in December and January. Um, whereas you can move, well, you know, you can move Bitcoin in 10 seconds. Um, so there were definite things that appealed to me about Bitcoin. Um, and I thought, well, I'll put my toe in the water. So when we, uh, when we got the money, I got in touch with Kraken, set up a relationship with their OTC desk and bought my first big slug of crypto with them on the 24th of September. Um, and because I, you know, I had about 15% of my um, precious metals in silver, I thought I'll put about 15% of my crypto in ETH being the next one on the line without really knowing very much about it. Um, and that's, that's where I started. Um, and for about a month, I wasn't too worried. Gold wasn't going anywhere. Crypto wasn't going anywhere. I, it gave me a chance to read a bit more about what was going on. Um, and I started to begin to think this thing really is an asymmetric bet. This is one of the, the asymmetric bets I was talking about earlier. One of the times when diversification is not right, when concentration is right, when thinking about betting the ranch becomes plausible. Um, and I thought, okay, fine. So as, as October went on, as I read more and more about Bitcoin and about ETH, I became convinced of the story. Um, so it became a conviction trade. It moved from being a diversification trade, a la permanent portfolio, to becoming a conviction trade. And I decided I wanted to do this. Um, and I started to increase my, my, my position slowly. Um, and paradoxically, as the price went up, I wanted more. Um, and that is what you would expect from a conviction trade. As the, as the asset starts to move in the direction you expect, you want to buy more of it. Um, this is where the Kelly criteria comes in because the great danger is you end up you know, buying 100% of it, or even 150% of it, or even 200% of it, um, and gearing. But the Kelly criteria keeps you sane, or keeps me sane at least. Um, and I had these regular conversations with this, this young man in, in Belfast about uh, how my crypto was getting larger and larger as a percentage of the portfolio. And uh, then, of course, the conventional people started to say to me, so I still kept in touch with one or two traditional fund managers and IFAs. And they were horrified first that I bought gold, but yeah, particularly horrified that I bought crypto. And when I started to admit that crypto had got to 20% of my, my liquid assets, the reactions were extraordinary. Um, I, was, I was really chided and criticized and told I was being irresponsible. Um, and, and you know, people were really worried that I was making a, a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, so just before Christmas, I had one or two emails that said, you, know, you really, you know, somebody actually said he thought he ought to write to my wife because I was being irresponsible with the family money. Um, very interesting. Come Christmas, I started to buy a bit more. Um, the conviction got stronger. The arguments got stronger. Uh, I started to communicate directly with Plan B, amongst others, um, and had some interesting conversations about stock to flow and how 
how scarcity is, is modeled into price. And um, well, now, as of this morning, just looking at the piece of paper I printed out, um, I'm 51% in crypto on my liquid asset. <laughs> Which More is by scary. virtue of the price action, right? That, that's, uh... Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, again, looking at the numbers, I basically probably put in, oh, I don't know, uh, if I sort of think in percentage terms, I, I, I probably made 50% at, uh, of my liquid, my liquid assets have gone up by 50% because of crypto. That's the best way of describing it. Um, so I, I've added half to my liquid portfolio in six months. Um, and that has not been by trading. I, I will emphasize, I have simply bought and bought and bought. I did one trading exercise. Uh, you know, I have to be honest about this. So um, I, I built up my uh, portfolio of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum. I was comfortable and I was happy. And this argument, I must be diversified, just before Christmas started to, to hit me. So I thought, oh, I better, better do something about this. And it was before Christmas. I didn't think it through and I didn't do my research. You know, here's, here's a warning. If you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. How many times have I told myself that over the years? So I bought XRP at 60 cents. And the bugger promptly dropped to 23 cents, at which point I killed my position. No, 25 cents, at which point I killed my position. I took, an, took a 40,000 pound loss, which was very painful uh, for me. Um, and I shouldn't have gone in there. I shouldn't have traded in. I shouldn't have traded out. It's now over a dollar. Um, you know, I did everything wrong. So, you know, I'm not Superman. I, I, I make huge mistakes like everybody else, but I've not since then done any trading. Once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, well, once bitten, here's the podcast. Um, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Incredible journey. And in, I think it's very, very important for somebody from your generation and with your background to come on and, uh, and talk about this because of course, Bitter, uh, Bitcoin Twitter is a, is a very young place uh, as a Gen X and myself, you know, I'm generally uh, probably at the, the higher end of the range of, of most people that are on there. Um, now, there's there's a fair amount of us actually I would say in in our kind of age group that have have seen it um, but with your experience for uh, allocating to assets and seeing this asymmetrical risk uh, this asymmetrical bet I should say when you're looking at the younger generation um, especially the zoomers who I've interviewed a, a handful of those guys who just are just thinking on a completely different plane, um, one one young lad in particular, just 17 years of age, um, talking about how Bitcoin has completely changed. Uh, well, first of all, it's given him this thirst to learn, this this complete drive to to find out and educate himself in all kinds of different areas, um, whether that be psychology or philosophy or you know anything he's learning at school, he can now apply a Bitcoin lens and look at it and join the dots to modern day. I, I find it fascinating. Um, and these guys should be allocating a hell of a lot, you know, almost anything they can get 
into Bitcoin if it's an asymmetrical bet because they don't have this, um, you know, they have the longer time horizon. How would you like to address folks that are perhaps, you know, 60 to 70 and um, coming to this point in their life that one, they need to, this, this, this can't be ignored anymore. It, it, is that like the kind of message that you want to get across? Yes, I, I think, I think we need to be a little bit more specific about, let's go back to the casino. What have we got here? What, what edge do we have? What do we think our upsides are? What do we think our downsides are? Um, I am very, very impressed by both, um, well, by the on-chain analytics work that's done. Um, I don't want to go too far down the technicals, but I am intrigued by the fact that you can look at where people bought Bitcoin um, and form a view as to where that implies the likely price floor is going to be. And I, I'm... I'm not quite sure where Willy Woo's price floor is at the moment. My guess is it's 46, 48,000, something like that. Um, so bear in mind at the time of recording Bitcoins at, where's Bitcoin today? I don't know, 64? Um, I haven't. Oh, yeah, it's new all-time high day. Um, yeah, yeah, I haven't. I, haven't yeah. I, I mean, you see, here's an interesting comment. I haven't looked this morning. Right. Um, and that's an interesting comment in crypto Twitter space. I haven't looked this morning. Why haven't I looked this morning? Because I'm not going to do anything. I'm as long as I dare go. I have absolutely no intentions of selling. So what is the point of looking at the screen? I didn't have, in the, when I was in the city, all these active managers had Reuters screens, which is the only technology we had, on their desks. I didn't want one. I wasn't going to buy or sell, depending upon what happened today or even what happened this month. Uh, and I'm still still of that school. So, um, downside, hmm, forty six thousand. Um, upside, uh, who knows? Um, plan B talks about an average price for this cycle of two hundred and seventy five thousand uh, dollars. I'm not even going to comment whether I think that's mad or not. Um, my view is that the upside is is way above a hundred. Uh, and it may be above 400. I don't care. It's asymmetric. Um, therefore, I ain't going to sell. Um, I, I have, I basically have enough crypto to really damage my portfolio from today's value. But I don't have enough crypto to damage my portfolio greatly from its value on the 24th of September. And this is a very important thing to remember. You know, my portfolio got book valued, mark to market, on the 24th of September last at a particular figure. If crypto went to zero today, I'd be down 7%. Of course, I'd be down from my current position um, 25%, which would, which would be painful. But you see that you see the issue you you understand what i'm saying i i am i'm now sufficiently far away from my uh, book value my initial investment value to be able to relax um that wouldn't necessarily be the case well it wouldn't be the case for someone who was starting so they've got to come in at a very low level one percent two percent three percent four percent whatever they feel comfortable with. money they can genuinely afford to lose 
And please, this is not investment advice. This is risk management. This is risk education. If you've got a portfolio of, for the sake of argument, £500,000, um, putting 5% into Bitcoin, if you're comfortable losing that much money, is fine. Putting 50% is madness. Um, because it might, you know, it might go wrong. Something might happen. It's harder and harder and harder to think of reasons why it might go wrong. Um, my favorite is probably governmental intervention, but I think that will only go wrong in the short term because I'm investing for my grandchildren, that doesn't worry. But if I was thinking of buying a house in two years time, it would worry me. Um, so horizon becomes very important. But with a, you know, with a 25, year, 25 year horizon, which you've probably got if you're a 17 year old, although you've got to buy a house at some point, so you've got to think about that. Uh, you might get married, it's even more expensive. Um, we've got to look at what our time horizons are and what risks we can, we can take. But I'm very comfortable. I don't expect us to see 45,000. And frankly, if we do, I'll be buying like you can't believe. Um, forget the fact I go over 50%. I last bought, actually an interesting comment. I last bought Bitcoin at 46,100. And I am completely comfortable with that. My average Bitcoin entry price is about 22,000. I, I wish people on crypto twit would do, would make those statements. You know, uh, my average entry point is so-and-so. I've got approximately so many coins. I mean, I've got approximately 30 coins. Um, and my entry price is $22,000. And, and I think that's the type of statistic that I'd like to see, because a lot of people speak big uh, on crypto Twitter, And I wonder if they've got five coins or 50 coins or 500 coins. Because in reality, unless you know the context, you can't really evaluate what they're saying, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does make sense. Um, um, so, I'm so, sure you so, follow, so, I was gonna say, on. I'm sure you follow Michael Saylor and, and keep an, a close eye on, on his numbers that he's putting out there because they are just nuts. <laughs> well, and, and, yes, they are, and no, they're not. Um, yeah, he's, a, he's a conviction trader. Uh, he's got a company that's doing adequately. It can service the debt. Um, I don't think I, I, I don't have any problem with him. I think he's brave. Uh, I think he's uh, against the uh, conventional wisdom, but I don't think he's mad. Um, uh, you know, I certainly don't think he's taking as much risk as Elon Musk is on on uh, a successful mass adoption car. I think that's a much bigger bet. Um, interesting. So, um, so basically, I would be long MicroStrategy and short Tesla, <laughs> uh, <laughs> except, I, except I don't pick stocks, so I'm not going to do it. Um, and you should take that comment as definitely not investment advice because I'm not a stock picker. I've never been a stock picker and I don't know how to pick stocks. But conceptually, if I was locked into a room and had to choose where I'd be long or short, I would be long MicroStrategy and, and short Tesla. Um, so, yes, so what would I say to a boomer? I would say, look, get your foot in the water. Um, buy half a Bitcoin, buy one Bitcoin. That sort of, that sort of sum. If, if you've got half a million quid of, of, of pension fund or whatever, um, you know, and, and you've got some spare cash hanging around, buy half a Bitcoin, buy a Bitcoin, get the experience, um, you know, do it on an exchange, uh, 
get it on the exchange, make sure you understand that it's on the exchange, then get to the next step, go out and buy a ledger, go out and buy a trestle, get it off the exchange, get it in your hand, make sure you know how the software works, make sure your laptop can talk to your trestle and you can see your, your Bitcoin there. And, and then wait two or three weeks. And you know, when it's gone up 15%, you perhaps want to buy a second one. And that's fine, that's cool, because you're ready to buy a second. That's the type of language I do. Yeah, perfect. It's the type of language Sorry, I use as well. And, 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 and buy second one. I mean, a second Bitcoin, not a second Trezor. Although there are reasons for buying a second Trezor, which I'm happy to go into to do with security, but that's not the point I was making. No, absolutely. Um, and the, the, you brought up something way back in the beginning uh, when you were talking about uh, buying gold and, and silver and having that in a vault and then borrowing against it. And this is how you wealthy people stay wealthy. Now, there's lots of work going on in, at the moment in the space, the Bitcoin space, to, to provide these kind of services for people to uh, lend, uh, borrow against, excuse me, borrow against their Bitcoin. How far down that rabbit hole have you gone or have you not looked at it? Do you um, see okay, it? So, so there are some complicated issues here. Um, crypto is not just buying and holding. Although that's, I mean, sorry, let's just assume that you're not going to trade altcoins. Um, it's a different world. I certainly couldn't do it. Um, and I'm, I'm, it's not something I have any interest in or any particular advice about, except I probably think it's more dangerous than people realize. Um, but there is more to crypto than just buying Bitcoin or possibly buying a bit of ETH um, and holding it. There is the possibility of using your Bitcoin to do other things. Um, in many ways, the most exciting thing, which I haven't done, and I'll come back to why in a moment, is to buy Bitcoin and sell the futures. Um, so you can buy Bitcoin now, uh, sell futures on Deribit out to December, very easy transaction, and you will make 25, 30% 50, nearly 40% annualized at no risk or at very little risk. Um, and it doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin does. That's a, a really interesting trade. So that's getting you a cash, essentially taking your cash and, and getting your cash to produce 40%. Now, there is a problem with it that is not obvious. Um, and that is that as Bitcoin goes up, your short futures position is going to go down in value and you're going to have to fund those shorts. So you're going to pour money in. It doesn't matter because you will have Bitcoin at the end that you can sell to meet those shorts, but you, you actually need quite a bit of cash swilling around the system to make that 40%, even though the 40% is virtually risk-free. Uh, and I don't have that sort of cash swilling around, but that's a very interesting trade that Plan B and others are talking about. And, and if people are interested in, in taking a what is currently cash that they want to leave in cash, but um, make it uh, turbocharged in return terms, then that trade is very, very interesting and well worth considering. That's one thing you can do. Uh, another thing you can do, as you rightly point out, is to deposit your Bitcoin and borrow pounds or dollars or euros against it. And that's what I do if I wanted to buy a house at the present moment. 
um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sell my Bitcoin to buy a house. I wouldn't sell my Bitcoin for anything. I don't think, uh, but I would potentially borrow um, uh, my base currency sterling in my case against it. And there are ways of doing that. They have differing merits. Uh, security is one of the issues. Um, and because you're exposed to the counterparty, you're depositing your Bitcoin with somebody and that somebody has got to be really, really trustworthy. There are different models, um, different and different rates of, of, of interest reflecting the embedded risks in those models. Um, it's a nascent market, it's a fledgling market. Um, I, I, I am fortunate in that I don't have to do it now. Um, I might have to do it in the future, and I'm hoping by the time the future comes, that model of, of, uh, of Bitcoin, uh, borrowing against Bitcoin will become, will be a little bit more developed, um, a little bit safer. It, it's not without its risks at the present moment. And even the big boys, uh, probably in my view have more embedded risk than they necessarily recognize um is that a fair way of putting it i i, I don't yeah. want to speak i don't want to speak negatively of particular firms i mean if i were going to do it if you desperately wanted to um borrow uh cash against um your bitcoin for a particular purchase particular reason then i would go to unchained capital um, who, who I think are the best of the bunch um, for a number of reasons. I think their security model is strong. Yeah, I'm. It makes perfect sense. I I'm very much interested to see how this whole market looks in in five years' time, when we've had much longer track records. But I I, I definitely want the plebs to understand, like you know, you're not going to ever have to sell your Bitcoin, and there will come a day where you will be able to you know, earn off of it. So if, if, if I look at what I've done, I've actually huh, borrowed on my gold and bought Bitcoin. Nice. Okay. And I've done that for a good reason. So if you look at my, I mean, the analysis I have in front of me, I have a negative cash position of 230,000 pounds. <laughs> okay. Which is, which is fine. I have no problems with that. It's, a, it's borrowed, it's secured against my gold. Um, I have much more gold than the 230,000 pounds. I'm completely happy with that. Um, and, and anyway, gold's at a, you know, a cyclical low price at the present moment. So I don't expect to be margin called against it. That enables me to do other things. I bought some fine art and I bought some Bitcoin. Um, that's the way the wealthy do things. They don't buy you know, they buy a house in, um, you know, what is the reason you buy a house in Kensington? You buy a house in Kensington because it's a lovely status symbol. You buy a house in Kensington because um, it's, it's probably going to go up in value. But you buy a house in Kensington because you can easily borrow money against a house in Kensington because it's prime real estate. South Kensington. So that's why the rich buy expensive houses because they're easy to get loans for. It's easy to get a 95% loan on a 5 million house. It is not easy to get a 95% loan on a 500,000 pound house. See, this is what we need. We need, we need wealth, you know, like instead of have, have fun staying poor, we need to have fun staying wealthy. That, yeah. you know, there's so many of us 
have never been in this position before. We need definitely some kind of help understanding like this, this mindset, for example. Uh, you know. Yes, I mean, I, I, th I think, you know, where do I expect to be in five years time? Let us assume that, um, that Bitcoin, you know, well, five years from now, let's assume that Bitcoin is at half, half a million a coin, which is very plausible. Um, I think that's probably conservative. Um, you know, my wealth is going to have moved from being just on the edge of being a very high net worth individual will have moved probably to being an ultra high net worth individual. Um, at which point I will have access to a lot of the things, the private banking facilities, the loan facilities that are hard to get hold of at the moment. I've had to work to get, to be able to borrow against gold. I've had to put in some, some legwork and found a counterparties willing to do it. And that's something I'm happy to share with other people. If, if they want to do that, I'll tell them the, the trade secrets. Um, but, I expect by that stage to have probably bought three pieces of real estate, one for each of my children, which will almost certainly be financed against a combination of gold and Bitcoin. Um, I may well have uh, funded some overseas philanthropic work, which again, I expect to fund by borrowing against Bitcoin. And, and I will be borrowing, you know, one-year terms against Bitcoin, rolling them each at the end of each year, and the embedded Bitcoin inflation will more than pay for, many more times, pay for the, um, the, the, the cost of the borrowing. That's, that's my model for augmenting my wealth over the next 10 years. How much peace does that give you? Peace. That's a very, that's coming from you is a very interesting word. Um, I, I didn't expect to be managing money. Um, I didn't expect to be managing my money. I expect to be paying somebody to do it. So in that sense, it's unpeaceful uh, because I'm having to think about it. Um, am I betting the ranch on Bitcoin? No, because if, if it all goes pear-shaped and I lose everything, I'm you know, 7 or 8% less well off than I was on the 24th of September last year. It's still more than I ever expected to be. The land deal was an unexpected wealth shock. Um, so in that sense, I'm at peace with what I'm doing and I'm peaceful about it. Um, what becoming, I mean, so put it this way, when I, when I sold the land, I was in the center of the high net worth bracket. I am now on the edge of the very high net worth bracket. That's a big shift. That's millions of pounds shift since um, September. That begins to change the way I think about assets and begins to change the way that people think about me as a wealthy individual. I've had people um, offering me facilities, banking facilities and things. That I, that I wouldn't have had on the 24th of September just because I'm now over a magic number in, in dollars. Um, if I get over the next magic number in dollars, which is about 15 or depending upon who you talk to, either 15 or 30 million US, then a whole further swathe of secret transactions and secret mechanisms become available. Um, and I will have to think what I do. Um, with, with these. I mean, I'm also going to have to think what happens if Bitcoin doesn't crash, which I don't think it will, but what happens if it slows down? 
you know, what happens if it goes to 400 and then takes a year to go to 425? Nothing wrong with that. I'm still doing well, but I've got to start thinking if I'm going to continue this idea of, of, of aggressive trajectories, um, you know, asymmetric bets, should I, should I take these other things? I mean, should I take a big long position in the futures market on NASDAQ? This is Raoul Powell's latest idea, you know, Kathy Wood and Ark. Should we bet technologies that benefit from network adoption? I don't know. It's, it's a new idea. Um, Raoul's very good at coming up with new ideas. They don't always work, but that's the nature of the man. I certainly will think about it. Um, are there other things I should be considering? How seriously is the inflation problem going to be? Is food security an issue? Um, should I be thinking about increasing my commodities exposure? I mean, I've currently got about 150,000 quid's worth of commodities spread across the agricultural commodities and the hard commodities. Should that be a million quid? Um, you know, those are, those are a big macro structural questions that, that I haven't got answers for. I mean, I have got answers in that I don't intend to buy much more of broad-based equities and I don't intend to hold any bonds. Um, those are things I have got decisions about, at least for the next couple of years or three years. But if Bitcoin slows down, um, that's kind of interesting. That raises, so my, my, I suppose the first thing I'm waiting for is, is for Bitcoin, well, sorry, <clears throat> the very first thing I'm waiting for is for Bitcoin to get to above 100, at which point I'll start thinking, has the time come to sell? If it gets above 200, I won't be thinking about it's the time come to sell. It'll be, I'll be thinking about how do I hedge my positions? What on earth do I do? Do I do anything? I'll be thinking much more actively about reducing my exposure. Whether I'll do it or not, it's a different matter. Um, <laughs> I have a sneaky feeling you won't touch it. <laughs> well, I, I do too. But, but I, the, the longer, you know, the higher Bitcoin goes, the further I am away from the Coots or the Hargreaves lands downs of this world the conventional asset managers in the UK, the more extraordinary, the further my position is away from conventional wisdom. Um, and yeah, if you spend your time with your head in crypto Twitter, you think you're normal. But you know, let's just step back and say, I don't know anybody. I have not met physically anybody who holds Bitcoin. Mm. That's something I keep thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been to a Bitcoin conference. Um, okay, you know, part of it is that there's been lockdown, but you know, I don't, none of my friends, none of the people who I know, nobody on my Rolodex holds Bitcoin. Um, the only people who hold Bitcoin are people who I know, are people I've met through crypto Twitter or, or, or YouTube or whatever. So there's a silo effect that I have to be very careful about. And I have to make sure I'm not being, you know, an arrogant prick that actually this is for real and that I've not been sucked into to a weird world of pretend. I mean, my wife describes it as being you know, a pretend currency that we're all pretending to think is valuable. Um, and, and there's a certain sense in which at least the first bit of that is right. It is a pretend currency. And the question is, are we justified in pretending to think it's valuable? Because the only reason it's valuable is because we think it's valuable. Um, but then the only reason we think a pound note's valuable is because we think it's valuable. Um, one of the interesting comments that 
a, a good thinking friend of mine who is a skeptic um, uh, and, and he's a thinking skeptic of Bitcoin. There aren't that many people who are thinking skeptics of Bitcoin. He thinks that the big problem Bitcoin has is it doesn't have an army to support it. His view, the only reason the dollar, the only reason the dollar has any value is because of aircraft carriers. And, and you can see what he's talking about. You can see what he's talking about. That there is an element of you know, why is the pound relatively strong? Because we have nuclear missiles. It's, it's an interesting philosophy. Um, and it's not without a degree of merit. And then there's the other question, which is gold's been hanging around for 5,000 years. Is it too early to write it off? Should I cut my gold exposure and buy Bitcoin? That's an interesting one as well. Because you know, the worst performing asset on my portfolio since um, uh, September has been my precious metal. Very now there's, there's, there's something else, I, I one last rabbit hole I want to go down into um, because you emailed me a few things before we started mm, and sure. you talked about um, mining. Mm. Yes. So what's the uh, story? Okay. Well, when I got to the point where I felt I had fulfilled um, Raoul's command to be irresponsibly long in Bitcoin, and I just couldn't with a clear conscience take any more money out of Citibank and send it to Kraken and buy another Bitcoin. Now, it was becoming embarrassing. I kept doing it. And I didn't really have a strategy. Just every so often I thought, it's a dip, I better buy it. You know, um, <laughs> and, and, and when I bought three Bitcoin at 46,000, 46,500, I thought, I'm just doing this because, because I'm reading about it on Twitter. I'm, I'm just doing it keep up with the people who claim they're doing it and perhaps they're not and you know I just thought I'm going to stop this I'm going to think a little bit more intelligently and around that time I encountered Compass who you may or may not have encountered and Compass are a firm who uh, who provide essentially brokers for mining rigs um, and they argued that you can mine intelligently and sensibly um, just by buying a, a buying some miners and having them looked after in an intelligent facility that is quite green, um, safe around the world, and they'll do all the legwork. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Um, I, it wasn't a reject out of hand. It was a, a chat to them and talk about them. And I started off by buying they, they by the time I first met them, they had a had twenty seven quite old. Uh, mining rigs, these these computers that go into uh, racks in in a proper mining facility, secondhand, available for you know pretty knockdown price. So I thought, why not? It was Forty thousand quid or something. So I bought them all, and a few days later they were set up and running, and um, were working, and and I had had a, a, an account, and slowly the counter was going up and I was slowly acquiring Bitcoin I'd mined. And it was quite interesting. You know, I have a little app on my, on my phone. I, I can press the button and see how many Bitcoin I've mined. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, and then I discovered that actually, it's not just how many Bitcoin do you own that is, is a mark of status. Although that is, that is a, a definite sort of thing if you're in the crypto world. 
But there's a whole another level of status, which is how much hash power do you have? <laughs> how much hash power mining do you have? And people who are serious miners have at least a petahash of mining power. Um, and at that point, I think I had about half a petahash of mining power. And the compass guys are good salespeople, let's be honest. So cut a long story short, I now just, ha just have over a, a, a petahash of mining power. That means I have a whole series of, of these ASICs, these, these mining computers, sitting in racks, some are in Manitoba, some are in Kentucky, um, churning out Bitcoin. And I spend about 100,000 quid on this, bit over. Uh, I pay the electricity bills each month and the hosting costs. And I get um, Bitcoin appearing in my wallet. I have set up a mining wallet and I get about a quarter of Bitcoin a month. Um, bit over that now. Um, and long may it go on. And what it knocks down to when you do the economics is I am mining Bitcoin at about $28,000. <laughs> nice. That's, that's that's when you strip it down. Now, you have to make assumptions about what I can resell my rigs for, about mm. what's going to happen to the difficulty adjustment, which goes up. It gets more, it gets more difficult to mine Bitcoin as Bitcoin and price goes up for obvious reasons. There are some uncertainties, but on the basic model that I've got, I believe I am, by, I am mining Bitcoin at around 22,000, 25,000. Now, of course, if Bitcoin drops to 18,000, I'm going to be mining at a loss. If Bitcoin goes to 100,000, I'm probably going to be mining at a greater profit margin, although the, the price won't stay at 28 because the difficulty adjustment will go up, so the price will go up to perhaps 35 or 40 but there is still a big gap between the cost of my mined Bitcoin and, my, uh, and, and the current market price. And long may that last. Um, so it's, it's a bit more than a bit of fun. A bit of fun is not 100,000 quits worth. It's a genuine expectation that I am within eight or nine months going to have paid off my rigs um, and be generating effectively free Bitcoin. Um, and we'll see. It's, I certainly do not recommend it. I mean, you know, if someone came to me and said, should I buy Bitcoin or should I start mining? If I didn't have any Bitcoin, if they didn't have any Bitcoin, I would not say start mining. But if someone comes and says, look, I've got 10 Bitcoin, I've got 15 Bitcoin, I quite fancy a punt. Should I give 50,000 to Compass? I'd say definitely. It's fun. It educates you more about how Bitcoin works. It gives you another dimension to understanding the infrastructure. Uh, I haven't set up my own node because I'm just not techy enough. And the idea of buying a Raspberry Pi and doing it is too hard for me. I don't have the time in a typical day to do on-chain analytics. So I rely on a subscription to Willy Woo's service. You know, there are some things I can do and there are some things I can't. And mining is something that takes you know, half an hour a day of my time, less than that. Um, and it means at a trivial level, I'm going to have to understand more about how it's taxed um, and, and negotiate my way through the HMRC. So you know, there is some work to be done, but do I believe over the next two years that 100,000 will have more than justified itself? Yes, I do. I, I think I'll probably have trebled that value. That's amazing. Like, uh, you know, we don't meet many Bitcoin boomers, but certainly uh, not many at all that have gone straight down the mining rabbit hole, as well as just buying and holding Bitcoin. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, but you see, my, you know, my background is 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 very much applicable to it. You know, I, I I started off in project finance with a gold copper mine in Papua New Guinea. Before that, I was a chemistry major. You know, I I'm naturally predisposed to looking at techie stuff that's interesting, and that makes me slightly unusual um, at my age and with my background. But there are other people. I can think of other people who, particularly those who spent their career in 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 technology businesses who if compass you know if, if compass can get hold of them would find it very attractive um i think compass has got to start thinking about whether it wants people like me or whether i mean i think i'm very small as far as compass is concerned compass's typical clients buy a thousand rigs i've got 31 you know <laughs> so i'm tiny um but if they want that sort of business then they've got to start marketing to the sort of people who are like me. And, well, it, and it's I, funny. It's funny you mentioned this. They, they just reached out to me in my DMs a few days ago and, and want to set up an interview to come on and talk about their service. So it would look to me as though that they are trying to, to target um, the, the lower band of, of, of people, the Bitcoin Twitter plebs. Well, I mean, I, I wanted to say, I'm, to me, the most important thing here is people need to be educated about what crypto is, what the potential is. It, it's, it's risky in my book to not be involved in crypto. I mean that if you don't get in, if you don't have some exposure to crypto, you're gonna you're gonna miss it, you're gonna miss the opportunities, you're going to miss you know, significant potential for return, and you're gonna fee feel foolish in five years' time. Um, it doesn't involve a lot of time and effort to buy your first half Bitcoin or tenth of a Bitcoin, and buy a ledger and, and, and have it all working. It doesn't, these are things that people should be doing and I'd love to help them do it. One, you know, why am I talking to you? Because I'd love to help people um, not miss out on this, this fascinating opportunity. I mean, you don't get new asset classes very often. Um, you could argue that the technology stocks were a new asset class, although we didn't recognize them as such in, in the sort of early 90s. Um, Bitcoin is another asset class. It's possibly even more of an asset class than the technology stocks. Um, you know, by an asset class, I mean something that is uncorrelated with anything else that sticks out on its own. Um, and you want, if you're, you know, if you're a wealthy individual, you want to have exposure to the major asset classes. And I would argue that crypto now falls into that category. And therefore you want exposure to it. But, you know, it's different. It, at the moment, at least, you can't put it in your pension fund. You can't buy an ETF easily. To, to be certain in what is still a fairly Wild West early adoption business, you pretty well have got to have your own keys You've pretty well got to have your own uh, cold storage. You know, be, these are scary things. I mean, I tell you, uh, one of the most scary moments um, for me was the time when uh, I talked to the Kraken ATC desk, and it was only £100,000 at that point. And we agreed, first of all, to transfer 1000 to my uh, brand new ledger that I'd just taken out, and then 100000 of value to my brand new ledger. The sort of you know, eight minutes between them initiating that transaction and the Bitcoin arriving on my ledger was one of the scariest moments of my life because you know, I could have seen 100,000 disappear forever.
um, these are things that you have to be grown up about um, and do your research and take care. You know, don't suddenly transfer 100,000 onto your ledger without making sure you can transfer 1,000 quid safely. You know, don't uh, write your keys down in an appropriate place. Uh, think about what happens to your wife if you drop dead tomorrow and all your embedded knowledge, or husband, and all your embedded knowledge about how your crypto portfolio is run disappears. You know, these are, these are things that have to be thought through. And certainly succession planning, what happens if I, if I had a stroke? What happens if I drop dead? What happens if I just go gaga slowly, which is the most dangerous thing? These are things that, that, that have to be thought through. And your average accountant and your average solicitor won't know any of this stuff. So you have to go and find somebody who can help you. And that's not easy either. But again, I can point you to people who are good at this. So there's an offer there to anybody who listens to this and thinks, yeah, I'd like to talk about how this might work. Um, very happy to have a chat. Very happy to have a chat. And your your Twitter DMs will be open. Obviously, the um, the title of your Twitter handle will be in the, the title of the show. I start all the shows with that Twitter handle so people are easy to find. But um, if somebody wanted to send you an email, did, did I think you said you had an email address you'd be happy to use? Yes, I do. It's extremely simple. It's bp at pobox.com. Couldn't be easier. So that's bravo, papa at pobox, as in post office box. Dot com bp at pobox.com well thank you so much bruce i've actually lost your video i think you you might have just touched the video off um uh i don't know if Sorry, you yeah i don't know where it's it. gone uh hang on as long as, there? yep no you're back yep. you're back um yeah thank you so much for for reaching out um i'm gonna follow up with you on your email or uh, phone call i've got a few more questions personally i'd like to ask you about and absolutely um I, I i almost forgot to ask the last question listeners would be all over me if i'd forgotten this if you had one orange pill left to give to someone who would you give it to and why oh um that's relatively easy um i i would give it to um rishi sunak um the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, because I think that, quite honestly, Whitehall, um, which is an area I'm not unfamiliar with in my professional business now, uh, and HMRC, the, the UK Tax Authority, I think they're way behind on crypto, and it's the, the time has come to to wake up and realise that this is a, a an, an important technological opportunity for the United Kingdom just the same as it's an important technological opportunity for the United States and for France and everywhere else. Uh, otherwise, they'll get left behind just as much as, you know, if you're a wealthy boomer, you'll get left behind. If you're a country that doesn't take crypto seriously, uh, I think you'll get left behind. Right. Great answer. Well, thank you so much again. Is there? Did we cover everything? Is there anything else that you wanted to... Um, no, I, 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 I do think you and I should have a chat about some other things. I want to know a bit more about the whole issue of nomad capitalism and nomad living. So that's a whole, that's a whole subject we haven't tackled. Uh, yeah. Because, of course, you know, I'm sitting here with an unrealized capital gain that is eye-watering. Um, and that raises some very interesting questions. I'm one of those people who, who is preternaturally um, 
basically I, I will always give information to the tax authority rather than trying to conceal it. It's just that's the style I am. But you've got to think about how to do it and what it implies, because through, you know, through no real effort of my own, I've generated a huge capital gain, or what's to me a huge capital gain, through my crypto holdings. And I've got to think what I do about them. Um, you know, if I sell them, it's, it's got hideous implications. And there are all sorts of questions about how trades like the, the uh, long Bitcoin short futures that we mentioned, or even the borrowing, how that's taxed. So you know, there are some real issues that, that, that need to be addressed, and, and they're still very early. I mean, let's be clear. If you are listening to this, or if you hold 0.1 or even 0.01 of a Bitcoin at the moment, you are early. The infrastructure is still primitive. The tax structure is still primitive. That means there are huge opportunities to influence the way things are going, to talk to your MP, to, you know, we have a responsibility to help people get this right. Yes, great final message. And uh, thank you so much for stepping out of the shadows and, and uh, reaching out and, and coming on and sharing all of your past experience and your thoughts. Really appreciate it. And it's going to go a long way, I hope, to helping many people, especially people of, um, of your generation as well. Okay, well, I hope so. Good. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks, Bruce. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hey guys, what did you think of that? That was a journey through time. Listening to Bruce's stories, you, you probably figured out I geeked out a little bit in some of the old days there when he was telling the stories. I just wanted to pull more and more out of him. Especially when he's dropping bombs like, yeah, I, I had Myron Shoals and Fisher Black on the end of the line whenever I needed them to bounce ideas around. These guys, these guys, they figured out option theory. It's, it's still used today to price options on any machine you use that theory that they wrote and then hanging out with bill sharp yeah whatever i mean andy edstrom if you're listening to this you must be geeking out and preston and, and you guys thinking who the hell is this guy who is running around casinos with uh, these kind of ogs or old guys no leg pulling with bruce on that one now thanks bruce for coming on and um I really hope people reach out and connect with you, especially from the older generation that are looking for someone to guide them through this really strange world of, of Bitcoin. And I'm happy to lend my help at any stage along the way if anybody would like to connect uh, with you and then bounce ideas off of me or listen to the show. So I appreciate you coming on. Before we head off, guys, please check out the sponsors, one-bitten.com. You can find them all there. It's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten, Bitcoin only exchange. It's swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten in the US. It's relay across Europe, R-E-L-A-I.ch forward slash bitten. And then get your keys onto that Bitbox 2 hardware wallet, shipcrypto.ch forward slash bitten.